Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's weekly politics podcast, the Back in Session edition. I'm your host, Sarah O'Donnell, and while I've been writing editorials this week, my two friends here with me on this November 20th in the Journal's newsroom studio have been keeping tabs on the week's reboot of the Alberta legislature. I have so many questions, but before I launch into those, let me quickly just go around the table and introduce you to the Journal's provincial affairs reporter, Miriam Ibrahim. Hello. And city columnist, Paula Simons. Hello, Sarah. Videographer, Sean Butts, is also here in the room with us. And Hello, he will Sean. Be- <laughs> Hi, Sean. <laughs> He's waving to everybody. So Monday marked the official start of the third session of the 28th legislature. That's all very official. I took it from the speaker's webpage. And I think it would be useful to recap how the beginning of this session was different from the conclusion of the spring session. Miriam, how how had the pieces changed in the room? Well, in a few different ways. One, we have yet another new premier. It's been a lot more uh, even keeled, shall we say, than it was when the session ended last year after the um, resignation of Alison Redford and all of the fallout that that came uh, with that. Yeah, so we've got a new session, a new premier, um, a newly elected health minister as well, uh, Stephen Mandel, new uh, education minister, Gordon Dirks, plus we have a new leader of the NDP, Rachel Notley. So there is sort of a... A bit of a new cast of characters. There's a new front bench in government. One of my favorite things about looking at a new session is where everyone has been seated. You can, oh, see, yes. you can see who's in the naughty chairs. That's oh. right. Um, uh, people like Doug Horner and Fred Horn have been uh, pushed to the far corners of the legislature in places that are barely visible to the human eye when yeah. you're watching. You know, the people in the very back row are kind of in the curtains. Right. And, yeah. You know, it's you know that you're on the back benches when you get actually pushed all the way around to the opposition side and in the back. And it began the session with Lieutenant Governor Donald Ethel delivering a speech from the throne, other than noting that, once again, the government is under new management. And can I just say that that was the name of episode 56, so I like to think that they took that from us, but (laughs) we might have actually taken it from them. But did did the throne speech say anything to indicate how this new group of managers was planning to do things differently? Well, I mean, it was an interesting throne speech. It was very... Um, there it was? In, in that <laughs> there were certain things that were said that were haven't been said so explicitly, I think, before. The, the, the parts about Alberta being on this resource royalty roller coaster that that wasn't really the language that was used but there was some pretty strong and blunt language used about how this is really affecting Alberta and that if it isn't addressed it's going to undermine Alberta's future and that it needs to be handled in a way that will allow um, Alberta to continue its prosperity for its future generations it was it was obviously worded differently than that but that was the part that's really um, stuck out to me the rest of it there wasn't really too much new there was a lot that we heard um, that really fell in line with Prentice's five priorities and those are the priorities we heard about ad nauseum when he was campaigning for um, the leadership of the Progressive Conservative Party. Um, so in that sense, there that there wasn't much to it there. And in the case of the resource royalties, while the speech really did acknowledge that that is bad for Alberta in terms of, of not providing it sustainable and predictable funding, um, it didn't really offer any sort of solutions on how to get off that roller coaster. And that's really what the opposition picked up on. And, and the various parties picked up on, on different parts of that statement, obviously. On the one hand, you have parties who believe that that's going to mean more cuts. And on the other hand, uh, there there is a party that believes that this is going to mean either more debt or more taxes. So, mm. What were you hoping to see from the throne speech, Paula? Did, did you get any of that that you were hoping to see? Let's just say I'm always a bit jaded about throne speeches because they are... You know, they are collections of motherhood issues and waffle. So did I have hopes that there would be 
bold new policy pronouncements? Well, maybe in my more deluded daydreams. But no, I mean, really, a throne speech, unless you have a really extraordinary change in government, isn't often going to say something that makes you sit up straighter. Um, It was a safe throne speech. It was uh, a throne speech. It is good, as Miriam says. You know, goodness knows we have talked on this podcast pretty much every episode since it started about the need for us to diversify our revenue stream and to not be so beholden to volatile resource revenues. But, you know, the, the, the trouble is it's fine to say that if you're not going to offer any hints about what that might be, then people will fill in the blanks. So, you know, we've seen our colleague columnists speculating that this might mean tolls on new ring roads that this might mean changes uh, to the uh, income tax rate, that this might mean changes to the flat tax. But in fact, the throne speech didn't say any of those things. So, mm-hmm. it, Although Mr. Prentice did open the door to potentially changing or at least discussing Alberta's income tax uh, rate yesterday when he was asked yes. repeatedly, and he's been asked repeatedly about this, and that's obviously a result of that throne oh, speech. Oh, was that during question period or by reporters? Because he had to scrum later He did on, scrum right? after question period. So he was asked about this um, by Danielle Smith in question period yesterday. She asked him, I think, three or four questions that were about this and, and whether or not he planned to to, in, to change Alberta's um, flat tax. Um, and he really dodged the questions in question period. But uh, when he was in front of a room of reporters after question period, uh, he got at least five or six different questions on that. Uh, and, and finally, he said, look, it's not it's not we're not discussing it right now. I'm not saying we never will discuss it. Uh, so really sort of opening the door to that potential and really tying it back to the fact that oil uh, prices have have fallen pretty dramatically and could continue to fall. In the past, I didn't regularly tune into CPAC during Prentice's time as a federal cabinet minister, so I was really curious to see how he would perform during question period. So, how how's he doing? What what was the, what's the mood like? As I said at the beginning of the podcast, it's been pretty even keeled. Like there there haven't been any sort of real fireworks in question period yet. Is he answering questions? Is he stay? Uh, so like how long does he stay? It's really interesting. So he he's, the first he's, day he's been staying. Yeah, he's been staying for question period. It, you know, when Redford was uh, premier, she would often take the first couple of questions if she took any at all. And then within about 10 or 15 minutes, she was out of there. Um, so far, that hasn't really been the case with the premier. He's been in in question period answering questions like he's staying there. And on the first day, actually, I, I of question period, which was Tuesday, I, I noticed that he tended to answer all of the questions that were being asked of government, even the ones that were more specific to the education portfolio, for example, or health. You know, he was standing up and taking them and really making a show of taking them. And I even noticed they had brought a, um, I believe it was a government photographer into the house, which isn't very common when house is in session to have photographs taken, right? You have to you have to have special, very special permission to do that. And so it seemed to me that they were, and, and of course the photographer was looking only at the government benches so of course these were photos that were showing uh the premier you know in question period doing doing what he's supposed to be doing as premier Mm -hmm. and it's interesting because you know it's off to a good start we'll see how long that sustains but certainly i mean alison redford not only did she leave early but she kind of it, it was easy for the opposition to get under her skin it was easy for them to get a rise out of her she was quite brittle and you know when she left she didn't give you the impression she was leaving to go to important government business, you know, because, I mean, Mr. Stelmack used to leave question period early sometimes, and you, you didn't get the feeling that he was dissing you. You got the feeling maybe he had a meeting or something. Mm-hmm. When Alison Redford left, there was kind of 
this aura of goodbye power yeah, yeah. Aura of power. it wasn't it wasn't an aura of power <laughs> it was an aura of disdain it was an aura of i have better things to do than sit here and let you people ask me stuff well and especially so. towards the end of her her premiership she was really facing a barrage of of questions so i mean you know i can imagine she was pretty um I don't think it would have been. I don't think it would have been the best part of her day for sure. No, no. So, so it'll be interesting to see if he can sustain this more collegial approach. I mean, generally, you know, it, it tends to wear off after a couple of weeks when the opposition starts to get under your skin. But it'll be interesting to see who his attack dogs are going to be. Because, say, for example, when Mac was premier, a much more low key guy, he had someone like Ron Leipert, who was. Mr. Aggressive in yeah. question period. We haven't uh, really seen that dynamic yeah, and, play and, out yet, and, and, and I wonder if there is going to be that dynamic. It's going to be interesting to see. I mean, Stephen Mandel is the one I'm really curious to see how a couple of weeks at question period are going to get under his skin. Um, have how, have, uh, have Mandel and Dirks taken many questions? They've taken some questions. Um, Mandel is... is not a provincial politician so when he stands up in question period he doesn't speak like a a provincial politician he's slower he's less deliberate there's less there's fewer mr speakers uh which is nice because sometimes (laughs) that can be used as a crutch by by some of the ministers who are responding to questions he's used to the three or five minute city council (laughs) clock that they they had to to give their speech or questions Yeah. yeah so um not definitely not very smooth. Um, yeah, I imagine that's going to change once he gets more practice in question period. Um, Dirks has had a rough go of it for the first little while because he's been really taking a lot of uh, pointed questions about what happened during the Calgary elbow by-election and the uh, modulars that were sent to a school in his riding um, during during the campaign. A and school that was well down the list of priorities mm. for modulars. That's right. Now, um, his, his continued response, I mean, I don't think he really responded to that part, that question too much on the first day, but the next day, yesterday, he did um, and just kept saying that he was responding to the needs of Albertans and he did say that that uh, school had some some flood-related issues in that students who have been displaced from other schools have been sent there and it, it needs it needed extra space and all that sort of thing. But of course, um, for the opposition parties, it smacks of, of blatant electioneering and they've, and they've been going after him pretty hard for that. Um, Notably, Mr. Prentice yesterday when asked if he was going to consider bringing in legislation that would prevent these kinds of government announcements from happening during election campaigns, he said no. Um, which was not a very popular um, uh, comment. Answer. Uh, <laughs> no, with, with opposition parties, of right, course. Of course not. But uh, it's also worth noting that, you know, unlike Mandel, Dirks has parliamentary experience. He was a cabinet minister in Saskatchewan. Many, so, many, 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 many years ago. Yes. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see if it's like riding a bicycle. We can talk in a few minutes about the first batch of bills that were introduced by the progressive conservatives. But I would like to hear about how the opposition parties handled the newly organized government. I mean, how did Daniel Smith approach the the government in their in her first question period and and the rest of her party as well yeah as I said earlier she's been focused on on taxes and it's sort of a, an issue that makes sense for the wild rose to focus on especially given that 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 door has been sort of open I mean it's when you when you look back and read Hansard for the for the last two question periods and and if any of the listeners would like to do that I encourage it um, <laughs> that you 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 do see that there are very um, clear non-answers, if that makes sense, from Prentice in terms of of, uh, whether he wants to adjust the flat tax. Um, So they've been doing that. But it's been a lot. It's been, as I said, there haven't been fireworks. 
Um, you know, so far I'd say Rachel Notley wins for the best one-liners so far. She's been she's been um, delivering a couple of zingers that have been pretty popular. Yeah, in I, I saw people saying on Twitter, "Oh, that was the best line so far," and I thought, "What's the line? What did she say?" She said basically that you know they're saying that it's not your your dad's party while dad's back in charge, something along those <laughs> lines. She delivered it much obviously sharper than I've just repeated it. But as far as as one as far as one-liners go in QP, she she's won so far for that. But you know, we've only had a couple of days and uh, anything can continue to happen. But there there was also this sort of discussion of increasing decorum. And, and that came from the House leader, Jonathan Dennis. The opposition party say that that's a government tactic to make sure that the opposition doesn't go too you know hard against them. We'll see how things evolve. Right. Yeah, I have to say, I'm not a big fan of parliamentary decorum. I mean, to my mind... What a shock. I'm what? so shocked by that, Paula, <laughs> that you would not like parliamentary decorum. I mean, it's not supposed to be polite. It's not supposed to be gentle. It's supposed to be rough and tumble, and it's supposed to be the exercise of free speech and holding the government to account. So, you know, I, I agree with what Miriam has said when, you know, it's when the government says, oh, everybody should be nicer in question period. I mean that's nicer to them. Mm. Um, so yeah, they are they are the they are the the recipient of the the attacks and the questions and question period. Yeah, there, there is it, a line, right? I mean, it, when I was covering the legislature a couple years ago, there were days when I thought people on both sides, not necessarily during their questions and the official answers, but the stuff happening off mic, so to speak, was a little rude. And you know, there are kids from classrooms watching, going, "Are you kidding me?" Right? There's a difference between wanting people to have decent table manners and wanting people to be polite it's not it's not a place for polite no i mean yeah you do want you do want hard questions for sure and we would all we're all annoyed when the questions are all softballs so last week we talked on the show about the lead up to their the various party conventions miriam you were on your way down there um i I got the impression that daniel smith had a much tougher agm than uh than premier prentice Uh, what what's at stake for the wild rose in this session everything yeah they need to they need to try to prove that they are a capable of advancing you know ideas forward that will that are different from what the pcs can offer and they they need to they need to prove again that they can be a government in waiting there was a time when i think that when people looked at the the wild rose party and danielle smith they saw yeah i think that that could happen uh and i think unfortunately for the party after this weekend's agm a lot of people have have lost any thought of that why is that happening well it's 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 a threefold thing and in a very important way the party is a victim of its own success they successfully brought down a premier they successfully got the new premier to adopt many of their policy platforms so once they've done that i mean they really have cannibalized a lot of their own basis of support i mean they they did too well too fast but the other problem is having having been an immensely effective opposition having you know having ousted a premier having got the new premier to adopt many uh, basic uh, wild rose platform positions you're thinking of like the property rights yeah. issues and stuff like that well yeah. and getting rid of the plane like all those things that prentice did when he took over all those things that he was trying to distance himself um, you know w- using using to distance keep, himself from redford a, keeping open the michener yeah. center changing the travel policy the license plates all of these mm. things that the opposition had been hammering on yeah, so for the, months so the easy low-hanging fruit he went he went and picked their orchard um but you know she has a much bigger problem because people in that calgary oil sector who were bankrolling that party that wasn't ever about ideology and it wasn't ever about personality it was about hanging on to power what that elite cadre of people want is continuity in government and they saw 
Alison Redford as an ineffectual premier and Al- and Danielle Smith as a much more probable and plausible premier. Now they have Jim Prentice, and Jim Prentice looks, walks, sounds, acts like the kind of premier they want, and that money is going to start leaving Wild Rose and going back to the Tories because that because the shift in loyalty was never about ideology. It was always about, you know, who they thought was going to be the best premier for them. And right now that looks like Jim Prentice, a guy who's got plenty of connections in the pipeline sector, plenty of connections in the energy industry, and who looks like he's running a tight ship. And here's the third problem. Danielle Smith has been trying valiantly to move her party to the center where she thought there were more votes. As Miriam can tell you from having been there at the AGM this weekend, there's a lot of pushback from some of her own grassroots who were not comfortable with where she wanted to take the party on, on, uh, on a whole bunch of social issues, including gay rights. What happened at that AGM? I just don't understand how that went so badly off the rails. So you'll recall last year, um, the Wild Rose won all these headlines calling it the Mild Rose and a more mild party because they very loudly um, adopted this very uh, specific statement about equality rights. And it was a statement. It was a motion from the floor and it was a statement saying that the Wild Rose believes in equality for all. They will defend the rights of all people, including or regardless of... And then there was a list of yeah. gender, religion, gender, sexual orientation, you know, socioeconomic class, all sorts of things. It, um, it sounded like an NDP policy platform. And I think it's, it's, it's quite similar to what's included in the Constitution or the Alberta Human Rights Act, for example. So that was passed very easily last year. Overwhelming majority, actually. Rob Anderson went up before that happened and said, you know, we have to be loud and proud. People are making us look out, look out to be like, you know what we're not and we need to prove to everyone that we actually believe in this and you know gave this rousing little speech and the vote went and it passed that was last year well this year that exact same motion that statement was brought to the floor as a policy proposal to add it to their book oh okay and it failed it failed by quite a bit it failed 148 to i believe 109 And um, many people who spoke against it said, well, we already have a statement that says we believe in equal rights for all Albertans, and that word all includes all, and we don't need to add more specific designations. Isn't there merit to that? I mean, if you're saying equal rights for all Albertans, that that means that's pretty all... pretty inclusive, right? So what's the problem? The problem is if you back away from enumerating specific categories, and it's true, it can get to be like a laundry list. If you think back to the genesis of this in the pre-Delwyn Vreen days, our, our Alberta Human Rights Act didn't specifically say sexual orientation, and our charter didn't specifically say sexual orientation. And Delwyn Vreen had to fight all the way to the Supreme Court for an acknowledgement that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms also applied to people who were gay. And so there's a long code of history here. So when you back away from saying the words out loud and say, well, see, but we're saying all Albertans. We support all Albertans. The trouble is who's defining the all? The other problem is that, you know, the, 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 what they did adopt says, you know, everybody has equal rights and equal responsibilities. And equal privileges. And equal which pri- I think just as a statement is false. <laughs> Not everyone has equal privileges as much as we'd like them to have them. So right. the, the, but the the real problem is not so much what the words were or what the resolution was. It's what the optical spin-offs are. Because mm-hmm. what people who weren't in the convention hall saw, what people who were, you know, following Miriam's tweets, which I was doing, or, you know, looking at other people's reiterated tweets, the message that came out of that convention was that the party 
wasn't in favor of gay rights. Maybe that is not what happened. And arguably, that is not what happened. It doesn't matter in some ways what actually happened. The resonance is that the party is moving away from that more moderate position. And the fact that Danielle Smith was not on the floor when that resolution went to the vote, it looked like she was scared, it looked like she was afraid it wasn't going to pass, and it looked like she didn't have control of her own members. And that's damning. Mm. Well, and this has really exposed some some breaks now and, and, and caused some as well. We heard yesterday that an executive of a Calgary Wild Rose uh, constituency association quit the party. And he, he wrote a very passionate blog post about being an Asian Albertan and the father of a gay son. And he said, I can't be part of this party anymore because he said it wasn't so much what happened on the floor. It was the chatter in the room. People saying those, you know, those gay people are whiners. They're uppity. They don't need special rights. Now, that's his gossip of what he heard. But for a, somebody who'd been an executive member and a party loyalist to say those things is is damaging. And so it wasn't it, just him, even the, I think she's the, the party secretary, but a woman named the Lori Livingston, who's with the Wild Rose Party, sent out a very um, a, uh, a wild tweet. Yeah, mm. a few days ago, basically saying that, I mean, she used a, a whole lot of words I'm not going to use, but basically uh, Cooks and cranks, I'll <laughs> say it. Sure. You can say <laughs> she, it, Paula. She, she, I don't she, want anyone to think that's what I'm calling no, but them. She, but she, uh, but, she, but yeah. she, that's what she said. She said, you know, those cooks and cranks, um, don't speak for her. Yeah. Yeah. And, Paula, and, and Paula once the party again image basically. throws parliamentary uh, <laughs> niceties out the window. Yeah, but, uh, but I think it's important to say because this is somebody who's very active in social media, who's a public face of the party. Very active in the party. I mean, she was yeah. speaking to so many of the resolutions that were on the floor that day. I mean, she was up there and trying to encourage people. And, you know, and a lot of times when she was speaking, she would say things like, if we keep this policy in the book or if we don't adopt this policy in the book, we won't be seen as a mainstream electable party, you know? Very pragmatic sort of thinking from her. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so and she's she's a wild rose person. I mean, you know, I've she's yeah. she's she's a party person. Is it possible for Danielle Smith and the MLAs to fix this? To fix what the impression has been after this AGM? Is there a way a way forward possibly? Funnily enough, Laurie Blakeman of the Liberals may give Danielle Smith what she needs because Laurie Blake is uh, sponsoring a private member's bill, which would say that school boards don't have the right to restrict student groups from forming gay-straight alliances in schools. Gay-straight alliances are social clubs that support um, equity and and civil rights within a school community and provide support to gay students. And in fact, I mean, sometimes there's a gay-straight alliance without any gay student members of, you know, people who who want to demonstrate that that they are supportive. And to make uh, it a welcoming yeah, place. Exactly. Right? Hmm. So um, Laurie Blakeman is bringing forward a private member's bill to say that schools, you know, have to allow these things if there's student body interest in forming one. Um, and Danielle Smith has said that she may vote in favor of Blakeman's resolution, which would certainly give her an opportunity to signal that that's, you know, what kind of message she wants to send as party leader. Is that enough? I don't know. Hmm. Well, this has been a really good discussion about the dynamics behind session and some of the behind the scenes stuff. Let's save the legislation till next week. We'll we'll try to focus next week, you know, barring anything fantastically interesting. We'll take a look at some of the Well, by then we'll have a better sense of, of all the different the pieces because we haven't seen, um, you know, for example, the Accountability Act tabled yet. And while yeah. we were all looking forward to the, here I am talking about the bills, but... <laughs> 
while we were all looking forward to seeing what the property rights bill was going to say, it said nothing except that it was repealing another law. So there's not a lot of meat. Right. To it. So, and we have to try and figure out what exactly that means and right. what the implications are. So we'll we'll come to that those questions when we have a actually better things to say or more <laughs> informed things to say. Now, for those people who aren't up to their eyeballs reading fine print of Hansard or uh, various bills, we thought you might be interested in other political reading. So let's move to good stuff from the gallery. That's our weekly segment where we suggest something that we think press gallery listeners will also enjoy checking out. And as usual, though it doesn't have to have a totally political connection, who who should start off? Can I, well, can I start off? Sarah, oh. why don't you start? It's your show, Sarah. <laughs> it's not my show, it's our show. <laughs> I want to recommend something that was uh, started as a political story uh, out of the United States. It was the New York Times uh, coverage of the Senate's Keystone XL pipeline vote. And this totally crosses over into the world of journalism gone wrong because the New York Times accidentally published a rough draft of an article online uh, before the vote even happened, which showed uh, their multiple leads. It just shows the process of getting prepared for a breaking news story because it showed it had all the descriptions. If Keystone passes, they had like the top. If Keystone fails. And it was full of TKs, which means to come. So I just loved seeing that. It happens to everybody. Even the New York Times can accidentally hit that publish button. And uh, and it was, you know, it shows one how important the Keystone Pipeline story was even down there because they had multiple versions of the story ready to go. And I love the comment from a couple of the journalists. And I'll put the links to the different stories from Politico and uh, other sites on uh, one of the reporters, Tim Mack, said, let the journal who has never TK'd cast the first TK. <laughs> and uh, David Weigel, who is a New York Times columnist reporter, said, had a quote, TK, said President Obama in an exclusive interview with me. So they had good fun with it. And I had good fun reading it. So I will recommend those those stories. Mary, you want to go next? Sure. Um, once again, I have a good read, a good stuff from The Walrus. Um and it's a topic I've discussed before on the podcast. Um, it is their cover story. Continuity. I like it. There you go. I'm consistent. Um, it's from their December 2014 issue. It's an article called Armed and Dangerous, How Mission Creep is Turning Our Cops into Warriors. And it's by John Lorink. Oh. Um, and it talks about these uh, military liaison uni- units that have been um, developed at certain um, police departments, including one in Calgary, but it really seemed to start uh, in Vancouver with the um, Olympics mm. and continued and expanded. So uh, really interesting read there. Not too long either. So I encourage everyone to check that out. Okay, thanks. And we'll put up that link. Paula, wrap us up. I've been very interested in the Uber phenomenon. I'm the driver in my family. I drive everybody. And so I'm keenly aware of the inadequacies of taxi service in this city. And so I was very excited at the thought of Uber coming here initially. And the more I read about Uber, the less excited I became. And so I want to recommend to people as Edmonton debates whether or not we should have Uber here in Edmonton. This is the app that allows you to car share, basically. You, you People sign up to be drivers and they're not registered taxi owners. So for people who don't know what Uber is. Um, In the United States, it's become quite controversial because a a columnist from the tech sector who was covering Uber as as a tech startup wrote a piece in which she said she was very disturbed that the French application of Uber in Lyon, France, seemed to have partnered with an escort agency, creating the impression that if you called an Uber driver, you would get a very sexy young woman who would come and give you 20 minutes of special driving. Um, And so she wrote a piece saying that 
um, she was no longer going to be an Uber customer. Uh, then her colleagues at BuzzFeed, one of the BuzzFeed editors was at a dinner party with a bunch of Uber executives who, at a private dinner party, launched into an attack, basically threatening that they were going to look up all of her ride history and track down where she lived and looked up dirt on her and said if women were raped, it would be her responsibility. Um, anyway, it became this very, very ugly Discussion and interestingly enough, the Uber exec it was ne- super creepy. Never claimed that he didn't say those things. Like I guess he said them at a dinner party full of witnesses in front of journalists. In front of so, yeah. So that's the first thing. Like, don't, don't don't do that. Don't don't threaten illegal uh, stalkering a, of yeah. other journalists in front of other journalists and assume you're off the record because I think uh, plotting a crime in front of a journalist is never off the record. Um, <laughs> so it, it's led to this really really interesting discussion about whether Uber. Um, is a safe culture for women, either as drivers or passengers. And so Sarah and I will provide you, dear readers, with links to the original BuzzFeed story and to some of the reaction pieces. Um, And you can judge for yourself as Uber attempts to enter the Edmonton market, uh, whether their past practices in France and the United States should cause us concern here. Mm, Sounds good. We were talking about that in the newsroom, so I'll look forward to reading more of uh, the full, complete picture. That's it for this week. Thanks to Miriam and Paula and Sean for the session on the session. And uh, you can find Sean's video excerpt from our discussion at edmontonjournal.com. Previous episodes of the Press Gallery are archived on our website at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion. Or if you prefer, you can download the podcast for free on iTunes or listen via our Edmonton Journal SoundCloud feed. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Press Gallery and uh, ask some questions on there recommend some good stuff on your own we'd love to have another reader recommendation because we will all be up to our eyeballs in Bills and Hansard for the next few weeks so extra outside comments and reading would be appreciated thanks for listening we'll be back next week in the press gallery